Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And this week we're getting Alpost again as we bust open the Muggle mailbag to get your feedback on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And boy, did we get a lot of great feedback. Micah once again curated it all. And boy, do we have, according to Micah, the best theory he may have ever heard. Oh, yeah. Coming up. But first, we do have a couple of announcements, and then we're going to wrap up Prisoner of Azkaban. Laura, you have an important reminder for everybody. That's right. As a reminder, the MuggleCast 2023 listener survey is live now. The survey is going to be open through October the 6th, and we want to know what you love about the show, what you think we could do to improve it, and what other content you'd be interested in us making in the future. Uh, We're also asking anyone who supports us on our Patreon about their experiences so we can improve the bonus content over there as well. Uh, The survey is open to all, whether you're a Patreon supporter or not, uh, and it will be available through our website, in our show notes, and across our various social channels. Again, thanks to everyone who's taken the survey so far, and thanks in advance to everyone who will take it here over the next couple of weeks. We couldn't do this without you. The survey question for non-patrons is really simple. It's two questions. Question one is, are you a patron? Question two is, why not? In a way, it's like that. It's a little more intricate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. Like this genuinely, Laura, you did an, an amazing job with this. Oh, I enjoyed filling it out uh, under various names. And uh, it it really does help us. It it really helps us. Yes, Move Eric, your submissions forward. definitely help us. Yep. <laughs> we'll see. Now I'm going to have to go through the data and figure out which bogus responses to omit. I put little Easter eggs in don't there. Don't do that. I put little Easter eggs. Don't. No, 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 no. And we shouldn't. I. We don't want to encourage listeners to start playing around. No, I'm only the... I'm only adding humor. So like people like it sparks the engagement of like people yeah. going and doing guys do this. Laura worked really hard on it and we're going to use it. Um, We're going to use the info. For, for growing the show in a way that you desire. For a lot of fun things. You can help us shape the future of the show. So please don't hesitate to fill that out. And we mentioned Patreon. Micah, we do bonus podcast twice a month and we're recording a new one today, right? What can listeners expect later this week? Yeah, we're recording a new edition of bonus muggle cast today. And given that we are just about to start Goblet of Fire, we did our Goblet of Fire movie commentary last night i think a time turner has to be involved in some way to have this all make sense as we talk about it here but (laughs) uh yeah given that inspiration uh, i thought it'd be fun to talk about what didn't make the movie so it's actually a good thing we watched the movie last night and now we're going to talk about (laughs) what we love so much in the goblet of fire book that didn't make the cut for the film, but certainly could be a possibility for the Harry Potter TV reboot. Yes. And should be in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a long season of that show. But yeah, so that'll be a lot of fun to discuss at patreon.com slash mugglecast this week. So, uh, Micah, you also dropped a new playlist on Spotify. We've all done playlists. And last but not least, you created a playlist for us, for listeners. Yeah, I've been busy this week. So I I created a... uh, (laughs) A playlist that is Quidditch themed. And uh, you all mentioned that you did it for your respective houses. And of course, Laura and I are in the same house and she did such a great job with Ravenclaw that I thought I'd take a little bit of a different spin here. And I had a lot of fun putting it together. And so hopefully whether 
you know, you're just using it to go for a walk or you're working out at the gym, it, it's something that'll amp you up a little bit, get you ready for uh, for your workout. Or of course, if you're playing Quidditch. Oh yeah, that too. We will have a link to that in the show notes and the link is already available on social media. Those are the announcements for this week. And now we are going to wrap up Prisoner of Azkaban chapter by chapter. First, we are going to reread every single one of our seven word summaries that we did for book three. Then we are going to redo one of the seven word summaries. We voted on which one we were going to redo in advance of recording. And then we will do a seven word summary for the entire book before jumping into Muggle Mail today. Let's hear all of our Prisoner of Azkaban seven word summaries in order now. Chapter one, Owls deliver presents to Harry's bedroom window. Chapter two, Aunt Marge enjoys abusing Harry every minute. Chapter three, help arrives for Harry after an encounter. Chapter four, discoveries are everywhere around this leaky cauldron. Chapter five, fear about the murderer abounds on trains. Chapter six, McGonagall shades Trelawney during transfiguration class. Ooh. (laughs) Chapter seven, Neville fears rebuke when Snape poisons Trevor. Chapter eight, teachers forbid Harry from going to Hogsmeade. Chapter nine, suspicions rock the Hogwarts student body tonight. (laughs) Chapter 10, secrets are divulged via professors drinking butterbeer. Chapter 11, somebody sends a firebolt mysteriously to Harry. Chapter 12, Lupin teaches Harry how to fight Dementors. Chapter 13, Cho distracts Harry with her amazing looks. (laughs) Chapter 14, Mud finds its recipient. <laughs> Is this the one we didn't finish? Yeah, it was yep. just like, like it was like, leave That's it. That's my favorite it's, one. It's fine. Leave it. It's accurate. <laughs> Chapter 15. Fatigue sets in for Hermione intensely. Whoa. Chapter 16. Exams consume clairvoyance and shocking revelations. Executions. Chapter 17. Sirius attacks Ron viciously when Scabbers appears. Chapter 18, Lupin reveals backstory to many children. Ta-da! Chapter 19, Pettigrew begs Harry for forgiveness for murder. Chapter 20, chaos ensues on Hogwarts grounds under moonlight. Chapter 21, Hermione saves Buckbeak with a time turner. And chapter 22, justice is served by Hermione and Harry. All right. So we all voted in advance. And with three votes... The winner of the redo is actually chapter three. Help arrives for Harry after an encounter. That was voted on by Micah, Laura, and myself. So chapter three is, of course, the night bus, usually. Usually. Yes, when, when it's when not being titled by us. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Because re- I want to remind people because yes. we're going to redo it, right? So it's like it's it's the night bus. Harry puts his arm out. He sees the grim. It's yeah. important for us, too. Yeah. So here we go. Stan arrives to pick Neville up safely. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I, I like it. I, I like the think Neville choice. A, it's a better summary than what we had before. It is. And that's why we do this. And Neville is in quotes. <laughs> yeah. And now. We're going to do a seven-word book summary. 
Lord. Same order. Here we go. Serious. Prevails. Over. Ministry. Ooh. Officials. And. Snape. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So to kick off Muggle Mail this week, instead of hearing ourselves talk more, reading your amazing emails, we'll start with voicemails. And I teased earlier, we have what Micah says may be the best theory he's ever heard. I can't wait to hear what this person, Cameron, said concerning the Dursley's Christmas presents. Hi, this is Cameron Williams. Um, I've been a listener since the beginning of COVID, and I'm 14 years old. And I just called in to tell you a theory that I had. I recently finished the fourth book in another reread, and I started focusing on all the gifts that the Dursleys give Harry. I've always kind of wondered why they give him gifts. Um, since they usually just sent him something that they probably take from the trash. And I've always kind of thought that it was probably Hedwig who just kind of bugged them into bringing, uh, into sending him something. And I started looking at it, and they sent him three gifts throughout the series. And the Sorcerer's Stone, they sent him a 50 pence piece. In, um, the, in the second book, they sent him a tissue, and in the fourth book, they sent him a toothpick. And I don't know, maybe the series kind of stretch, but a 50 pence piece in the way that you flip it over and that it doesn't really have much value unless you look into it. It's kind of like the resurrection stone. Um, a toothpick is kind of like a wand, maybe the elder wand. And a tissue is kind of like a cloak, maybe the cloak of invisibility. Now, I'm not saying that the Dursleys were deaf or that they really knew what they were doing. But maybe J.K. sent this in as a little teaser for the Deathly Hallows. Wow. Just a theory. Um, I love the listening. Bye. I Thanks, Cameron. love this. As I was listening to this, I was putting it together and being like, oh, my God, it's the Deathly Hallows. It's like, this is such an amazing catch. So for anyone who's watching, my face was like, my blown listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) This is so good, Cameron. That is very interesting. Um, I would agree with you that the Dursleys didn't see what they were doing, of course. But maybe it was a idea from JK. It's an Easter egg. And I, I checked and this holds up. I had a memory of... The Dursleys giving Harry a coat a coat hanger and one of Vernon's old socks, but that happened for his tenth birthday. So before the book is set, so yes, during the course of the books, it is only these three gifts that we know about. That's, so this wow. is phenomenal, pretty amazing. Yeah, and what's wild is that we've been doing this for eighteen years. I don't think I've ever heard that theory ever. No. So great. The next job, generation Cameron. is totally fine. <laughs> yeah good for you all right we're i'm done with the show all right this next voicemail <laughs> for, for the yeah one of us <laughs> one of us has to step away and cameron has to step up this is the changing of the guard that was foretold we have so much great feedback today um here's a voicemail from eden concerning why voldemort really has no hair hey michael cast this is eden i'm a 12 year old gryffindor and i just wanted to share with you something pretty funny that i found so I was looking through 
Harry Potter series, and I found this one that said that the reason Voldemort doesn't have any hair is so no one can make a polyjuice potion of him. I thought that was pretty cool. I think Voldemort really just did it, though, to add the whole baddie vibe and whole weird snake obsession. But that's a pretty cool added bonus. And it got me thinking to Voldemort with the mullet. And I just, you know, I love that so much. Anyways. Thank you so much. Love the show. Bye. That's great. That's also very cool. No, it's a good call out, Eden. I suppose you could do it with toenails, but nobody would want to get that close. Ew. His feet definitely smell. Oh, man. I really like this. And I was trying to think that there's something about the bald character trait that seems to signify a level of power. I feel like when you, at least for me, when I look back on other series that I've either watched or read, there's this significance to whether it, people in the magical world, when they're bald, they they seem to have this certain level of power. I don't know if I'm just making things up at this point, but... Eh, Kingsley, Voldemort, <laughs> who else? Yeah. Slytherin. Mr. Freeze. Mr. Absolutely. <laughs> I believe most depictions of Slytherin have him as being bald as well. Yeah. People are listening live right now on Patreon. And Margo, am I pronouncing that name right? Margo said, I'm so glad we have a new generation reading the books and bringing us new theories. Absolutely. Yes. Good call. That's not an observation I considered before, the back half of that. All right. Next voicemail is from Alex with a Snape and Neville theory. Hi, Mugglecast. Uh, you know, stereotypically first-time caller, long-time listener, but I have a theory that I wanted to throw your way. wanted to see what you think. So, as we know, Severus Snape is very brutal and very mean to Neville. Of course to Harry, but really Neville. And with Harry, we kind of get it, but Neville never really so much explained. I have a theory, and I want to know what you all think. My theory is, because Snape might have known the prophecy, maybe every time he sees Neville, he thinks to himself, it should have been you. It could have been you. And Lily would have been safe. Maybe that's why he channeled so much anger and frustration into Neville. Not okay, of course. Not justified. But it's a theory. Want to know what you all think? Big fan. Hope to hear from you soon. Bye. 100%. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. This is brilliant. The only thing I would add to this is uh, the first lesson with Snape ever uh, Snape as a teacher comes across as not liking what he says are dunderheads. Um, and so he's over teaching in general incompetent students because he's the kind of teacher where he's like, well, it's easy for me. It's intuitive for me. Why can't you get it? You're stupid. He has disdain for students that maybe need a little extra help. So that is added on to everything he feels about the prophecy that Alex is saying. And, and Neville is just the worst at that. Bonus points for your delivery, Alex, of uh, Snape's thoughts when you yeah. were voice acting there. That yeah. was really good. <laughs> Next voicemail from a mystery caller about the full moon. Hey, guys. I was just listening to this week's episode um, when you were talking about Lupin's transformation. Um, I do some rituals during like the new and full moon um and if you look up like moon phases and like when the full moon is it's actually it might the, the reason why Lupin might turn at a specific time 
um, is because when the, there's a certain time that is recorded where the moon is the highest in the sky, um, you know, this Wednesday, I think it's at actually 730, um, and other days, you know, other months, it could be two in the morning, it could be, you know, in the afternoon where the, the full moon is highest in the sky, maybe not visible, but still highest in the sky. So I think um, Lupin's transformation has less to do with the moonlight. Maybe that's more for dramatic flare um, and more to do with the certain timing of the moon phases. Um, but just thought I'd leave that feedback. Hopefully you can hear this. I'm in my car driving to work. Um, love you guys so much. Bye. Hey, we love you too. And yeah, I think this is a really good call out, actually. Um, I think it's one of those things we can think about as headcanon. I know we've talked quite a bit about headcanon in recent history, but just taking something like this and plugging it in to kind of fill the information gap where it feels like a plot hole, but something like this could perfectly explain it, which is great. I love this. Yeah. And I, I love that there's a certain specific time where rituals have higher success or it's like the significance of the placement of the moon in addition to all the other cool things that the moon does for us um, and all the other ways in which its cycle is broken down. Um, so good stuff. Really, really love this theory. Yep. And just a reminder, when folks do call us to leave your name, you know, we want to be able to credit you for your voicemail. And I think there's a tendency sometimes for people to forget and uh, just wanted to uh, throw that reminder out there, much like Cameron and Eden did, you know, follow the youngsters, leave your name when you uh, drop us a voicemail. I think also people just, when you leave a voicemail, typically, I know like older generations, they still say, hi, it's, you know, it's grandma. I know it's grandma. I can <laughs> see that on caller ID. You know, you just don't get, younger generations aren't as used to like saying, having to say your name. So I see why people forget. Well, yeah. And also, I'll say this. Maybe not everybody wants their name to be shared. In that event, I would say come up with a creative nickname. Think about some of the nicknames mm. people use for Quizzage. Like I do on Quizzage. Yeah. <laughs> do that. Or just say I'm Tonks. Pick a Harry Potter <laughs> character. All right. Well, thanks to everybody who does call in and write in. Uh, we really appreciate the voicemails. We love hearing our listeners. If you would like to get in touch with us, if you want to drop a voicemail yourself, you can send a voice memo to mugglecast at gmail.com. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone. Or you can call our phone number, which is 1-920-3-MUGGLE, 1-920-368-4453. When you do call us, give us your name or a made-up name and try to keep your message about a minute long. Most of these emails are are related to Prisoner of Azkaban, but we do have a few at the end that are kind of random, I guess is the best way to, to categorize them. And we'll also end with some sweet chicken soup emails too. Uh -huh. Well, our first one comes from author C.K. Brook. Uh, I looked this up. C.K. Brook is an author of YA fantasy romance. So definitely check them out. Uh, but Micah, I think you're getting called out a little bit here. So C.K. says, <laughs> hey, y'all. Thank you for including that. I'm writing in response to Micah's question in your recent chapter by chapter discussion of chapter 21 of Prisoner of Azkaban. In the episode, Micah asked if the time turner might simply have been a lack of creativity on the author's part for not being able to think of a better way to free Buckbeak and Sirius. Respectfully, 
I wanted to say that not only was I dissatisfied with the explanation he gave, but I think the question itself misses the point entirely. Well, hold on. She said the explanation I was given. So she's talking not only was she dissatisfied with my question, she was dissatisfied with the response that was given I from see. the rest she of you all. She handles this very nicely, though. Let's, yeah, let's yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's funny. It's all of our faults. Yeah, basically. no, that's, that's true. I read the <laughs> sentence wrong. Um, so from a writer's perspective, while saving Buckbeak and Sirius is part of the immediate plot, the deeper and overarching theme is that Harry must save himself. Before going back in time, Harry believes it's his dad who conjured the Patronus that saved him. Only with the Time Turner could he come to the pivotal realization that it was he and not his dad who had to save himself. This speaks to larger themes in the series of Harry's self-reliance and eventual saviorhood. As well, consider the symbolism behind the message. Your father is not coming to save you. You must save yourself. I suspect this to be a reflection of the author's feelings towards her own father, from whom we know she's long been estranged. Whether this messaging was intentional or subconscious on her behalf, though, is probably a separate discussion. So the purpose of time travel in book three is far more than just a device by which to rescue Sirius and Buckbeak. Rather, it was an ingenious way for Harry to be in two places at once so he could literally save himself, thereby learning the self-reliance he needs in order to become the savior of wizard kind. I was a little surprised that nobody touched on this in your discussion, but hopefully it sheds more light on why, from a writing perspective, time travel was a perfectly fitting and creative method by which to convey several of the series' major themes. Thanks for reading. Hope you keep up the show for many years to come. Peace and love. No, I love this. Peace and love. Peace All right, and CK, love. I, and I love it, too. I love it, it too. At the it's end very thoughtful. Peace and love. No, uh, I agree with you. I think that one of the things to keep in mind is it's good for us to throw out different questions for the purpose of discussion, right? And I think that especially when you're the person who's responsible for planning a discussion, you try and come up with different ways to pose it to the rest of the panel. And I, and I think that for me in this moment, I was probably only thinking purely from the standpoint of how the plot plays out and could there have been a more interesting way for Sirius to have been freed but i think ck really does make a strong point here in that as much as it's about Sirius and buckbeak it is about harry and harry having that confident building moment confidence building moment to know that there are things that he can do that he doesn't even know um so I, I really like this point that she's making. Yeah, same. And honestly, you asking that question, Micah, is exactly what opened the door for a really great email like this to come in. So thank you, CK. And now this next email comes from Katie concerning Lupin's lesson plans. Another interesting observation here. Have you guys noted that all of Lupin's DADA lessons are creature centric? Why? Bogarts. Grindylows, Kappas, Redcaps. Was there ever a non-creature focused lesson? There's surely more to DADA than defense against potentially dangerous creatures. Perhaps Lupin has a special interest in magical beasts given his personal history. Or is he just following the traditional textbook? 
Maybe it's the theme of the year three text. Is Lupin teaching about defensive spells and other aspects of dark magic to other years? I have always wondered this, and I'm curious to know your thoughts. Sincerely, former Pickle Pack member, Katie. Ooh. Clever way to sign your name. Oh, man. Katie's an OG. Katie said maybe it's the theme of the year three text. I would extend that and say it's a theme of book three, and that's why there's a focus from the writing perspective. But also, I like this idea that because Lupin is a werewolf himself, he is teaching about creatures. And maybe it's almost foreshadowing for the reader. Yeah, I'm trying to pick... You know how like when we did uh, home economics um, or family and consumer sciences, it was called, um, that they waited until we were like old enough to cook because we had to like handle machinery or like so because we had to handle things like that. It's like, it's like maybe there is something to handling magical creatures, which is another class they have this year. They're 13, so they're they're judged as being capable of handling it. Like, so I, I think there might be something to that as far as like it's the theme of the year. But yeah, I like your idea, Andrew, that like maybe because there's all this focus on beasts in the way of Buckbeak, um, they're kind of offsetting it by showing a lot of creatures in the magical world um, so that it doesn't seem like she's always writing about Buckbeak. Because you're learning mm-hmm. about all these other creatures that exist and bogarts and dementors and all this other stuff. Hashtag world building. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think back to the other books and what they actually learn prior to this in Defense Against the Dark Arts. I don't know that we get a whole lot of time with Quirrell. I think the first DADA class we actually spend time in is with Lockhart. And we know mm. how much of a disaster he is uh, as a professor. Although creatures come into yeah. play there too, right? Cornish pixies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He does teach them how to duel, which is a natural defense against the dark arts practice. But the other thing with Lupin, though, is that we are seeing more defense against the dark arts. He's just teaching Harry, he's not teaching the rest of the class. And I think. He's setting Harry up for Order of the Phoenix to really be the strategic defense against the dark arts professor when he starts to teach the rest of Dumbledore's army. Mm -hmm. All right. Our next email comes from Jenna, who talks about father figures. She says, hey, Muggle cast, listening to episode 624. And I had a few things to note. You talk about father figures in this episode and in others. Most father figures to Harry are majorly flawed in some way, and I guess Hagrid is the only quote-unquote flawless father figure that Harry has. Anyway, my point is, I think the reason for this is because J.K. Rowling herself has a tough relationship with her own father, as was noted in a prior email. Uh, I'm positive I saw an interview with her where they revisit her past and her childhood, and she mentions her relationship with her own father. Perhaps this influences the father figures in Harry's life. Thanks for being awesome and the best possible way to end what is usually a stressful day at work for me. Aw, we got you. We got you. (laughs) Yeah, this makes sense. You write what you know. And unfortunately, whether you want to or not, uh, inevitably the relationship spectrum that you have in your life kind of can appear in your writing. I think if you really showcase all types of people, And it does happen that a lot of these characters do happen to be fathers, Um, but there is enough of a variety in there. You can picture other characters being good dads, Um, but the ones Harry has, there's always something else going on with them. So, Mm, yeah, I I don't know that I would call Hagrid flawless. 
He has his blind spots. No, but he's as close to flawless. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. Oh my God, I say it every episode. But what episode, about Arthur? <laughs> I thought about him too. Perfect? Yeah, Arthur is a, a father figure to Harry. But I think the interesting thing about it is Harry, he does have a number of father figures and the ones that he seems to place the most emphasis on are maybe the ones who weren't the best father figures to him. But then when you think about people like Hagrid, people like Arthur, who were great father figures, and, you know, he could have drawn inspiration for his future children's names from those people, but he didn't. He instead chose, you know, Albus Severus. (laughs) So it's just very interesting to see kind of... um, see that happening. And I think we could also do a deeper reading into the text to think about what that says about Harry and the trauma that he carries around sort of the lack of a central positive father figure in his life. And I think too, so many of these characters provide like different things that Harry needs they're not all the yes. same type of father figure. So it's almost like it's a collective that is raising him. And that's life, right? It takes a village. You connect with different people. It takes a village, but you connect with different people and get different things out of them. Everybody's got different skill sets to help you move along through life, whether you're an orphan or not. But yeah, it is really interesting to kind of zoom out and take that 30,000 foot view of how concepts of fatherhood and motherhood are sort of built and portrayed in these books. Again, that could be a whole episode if we wanted it to be. The next email comes from Jackie about Bill the Werewolf and the Marauder's Map. Hi, it's Jackie, and I want to correct you guys on something. Bill isn't, uh, it's a very strong beginning to that email. Uh, Bill isn't a werewolf. Uh, He was scratched by Greyback when Greyback was in human form. And I've read a theory concerning why no one saw Peter on the map. The Marauders did a charm that hides the fact that they are animagi. In the book, when Remus looks at the map, he sees Peter and Sirius. But when Snape looks at it, he only sees the trio, Remus and Sirius, but not Peter, who was still in rat form. This was created as a safety precaution in case the map wound up with a teacher. That's interesting. So only they would be able to see themselves in animagus form. On the map. Yeah, that seems like a good security measure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder I like how that, that works. Also, the importance of closing the map when you're done using it. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little thing. Uh, but I think I was the one who had said that uh, Bill was a werewolf. So I appreciate uh, Jackie calling that out. It mm-hmm. is a good call out. I think I recall, though, weren't there, wasn't there some kind of reference made by Lupin that Bill prefers his stakes on the raw side now or yeah. something. So like, yeah, Lupin, Lupin, like Lupin, Lupin counsels um, Bill as a result of what happened. Like his face is, I mean, a scratch is kind of putting it lightly. His face is like really cut up. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if that's actually a line in the books though. It's a movieism. It's Deathly mm-hmm. Hallows part two in the seven Potters scene when Bill is introduced to us. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it is from the books, but I, if I recall correctly, I think it was actually something from Half-Blood Prince set in the hospital wing 
And I think they just ported the line over to Deathly Hallows part one. Right, because isn't there back and forth with Molly and Fleur about yeah. how she really still loves him, even if he's has is in this condition. So right. right. And that makes Molly. Maybe he's just I, not full blown werewolf. Yeah. Uh, so what it says, it's in chapter 29, the Phoenix lament, and it just says his wounds are cursed. So they, they have some element of lycanthropy, but yeah, he's not a werewolf. Yeah. Not full blown at any rate. And Teddy, I did check, and Teddy Lupin is also not, um, does not have his father's, uh, Okay. Curse. All right. Next email comes from Rachel. Hey, guys, I was reading chapter 19 of Prisoner and noticed something odd. After the trio knocks Snape out, Lupin wants to offer up proof about Pettigrew. He refers to Ron as you, boy. I wondered why he would refer to Ron this way, because he was always such a casual and personable professor and often called his students by their first name. Do you all think the author meant to have Sirius give that line slash was it an editing mistake or is this just an out of character moment for Lupin? Would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. For me, it reads like a Dickensian way of like when uh, Scrooge wakes up and he's so excited and he runs out the window and he's like, you boy, <laughs> do they still have that prize turkey in the window? Um, yeah, it's it's he's 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 thinking too quickly. He's extremely excited. Yeah. And Ron, even though he you're right, he always gives that like first person touch relationship with his students. Maybe Ron really is that that boy that he kind of addressed the least or is least familiar with. I think just quickly, you boy, that works. All right. Our next one comes from Jenny, uh, and it's about Veridiserum and Secret Keepers. Jenny says, hi, y'all. After listening to the podcast about Chapter 19, I got to thinking about being a Secret Keeper. Do you think the magic of being a Secret Keeper is stronger than the magic of the Veridiserum potion? Otherwise, what would stop someone from giving a Secret Keeper the potion to learn the secret? Uh, oh, that's I love I love these branches of magic and it's like we pit them against each other and they're like, okay, so which one will win out? It's like the dueling club all over again. So sometimes I just get Googling when people ask us great questions because obviously Harry Potter is massive and everybody's got a theory on every question on the internet. We obviously love trying to answer these ourselves. But I, I like I said, I went Googling and I like this answer I saw on stackexchange.com, which is like a Quora um, website. Um, this one person said, and this is uh, looks like AU101, in 2016, they said, the first thing I'd say is that Veritaserum is only one tool. It may be magic, but it is not invincible. It is not infallible. Rowling has gone on record saying Veritaserum works best on the unsuspecting, the vulnerable, and those insufficiently skilled in one way or another to protect themselves against it. As such, this uh, person on Stack Exchange continues, in no sense can Veritaserum be relied upon to always force the truth out of someone. That, I think, is worth bearing in mind. Secondly, the magic of the Fidelius charm, to me, is rather beautiful. It's about fidelity, uh, loyalty, trust, and friendship. And to me, the element of choice there is all important. The spell is broken if your secret keeper betrays you. It's about betrayal, infidelity, treachery. So that's the short answer. Interesting. Um, and uh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. Also, Lauren in the Discord says, I thought the secret keeper has to willingly give the answer. It can't be forced out of them. That speaks to like betrayal, loyalty, the fact that you're being fidelis. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Cool. 
Our next email comes from Jonathan talking about the Godfather's magical bond. I feel like Eric will really like this email. I'm waiting. He says, hey, y'all. I'm from Mississippi after all. Uh, I just finished listening to episodes. This 624 was a big one we got feedback on. Uh, where's, the mo- where's the moon screen? Well, when- with a title like that, it got everybody tuning in. I got to say, I'm happy about several titles uh, coming from my brain lately. Mm-hmm. You guys. Well, in Mississippi, maybe they interpreted that as where's the moonshine. But Shine, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, When Laura first talked about Sirius being Harry's godfather, it got me thinking. There are a few times in the series that it talks about a magical way to bind two people. The Unbreakable Vow, Snape and Narcissa, Blood Pact slash Oath, Dumbledore and Grindelwald, and the less life-threatening bond between Bill and Fleur when they got married. Do you think that when James and Lily asked Sirius to be Harry's godfather, that there was some kind of bond that formed binding him to Harry. I believe that there was, even if no one realized it at the time. It may not be as strong as when Lily gave her life to save Harry, which took a little time for Dumbledore to figure out, but I believe something happened. Keep up the good work on the podcast. I've been a Potter fan for about 12 years and got into it because of my kids that are now adults. And keep up the good work and let me know what you think of my headcanon, Jonathan, Ravenclaw, Hogwarts class of 93. P.S. I asked Dumbledore why Lockhart, and he just smiled and said, you'll laugh with me. I'm sure of it. And I guess that's a (laughs) reference to him hiring Lockhart. I think so, yeah. I think so. Hogwarts class of 93. That's a fun little part of your signature. I do love that. I do fully um, agree with this, that there's probably some kind of magical bond because uh, famously, godparents are the ones who vow. It is a vow uh, to kind of look after the child in the event of their parents' demise. Uh, there are reasons why Sirius obviously can't fulfill uh, his vow. But um, if you're Catholic, for instance, um, you have to be baptized, which is a sacrament, uh, one of one of few Uh, in the church, and you're present at the baptism of the child as well. So you're kind of witnessing the next generation, um, and you're a prominent part of that baptism ceremony. So, like, it, you know, I know there's not a religious leaning aspect to the wizarding world, but there's still that same, this is important, this will be a magical commitment or a supernatural, let's say, commitment with impact and ramifications to this, you know, the world beyond. So 100%, I think it's probably some level of a magical bond there. I agree. And I think, too, that I think that religion, particularly Christianity, does come through in these books quite a bit, which makes a lot of sense. The author is Christian, and a lot of those you know, overarching themes of the savior character who, you know, dies, but then comes back, um, really do come through in these books. And actually, that's one of the most interesting readings that I think you can do about Harry Potter is kind of like picking out where um, sort of biblical references really do come through in the books. Thinking about it from a very academic perspective, of course, not to say that you should use Harry Potter to like, you know, 
preach to anybody. Um, but I think that it is a really true representation of the fact that religion and myth play such a huge role in the stories that we tell, even if we don't necessarily know that that's what we're doing. Um, so it's an amazing call out. And I would just say, you know, to add to your point about the bond of godparents, Eric, even outside of a religious context, there are, there's legalese sometimes tied up in somebody being a godparent. I didn't grow up religious, but I do have godparents, <laughs> right? And right. that was something that was written into my parents' will, that if Ooh. something, you know, happened to them, that this is where me and my brother were going to go. So the idea of there being an unbreakable bond, I think, is very real. Yeah. For me, when you just think about the whole mother's love angle that is so important mm -hmm. in this series, I can buy this as well. Same. Yeah, just to build off of what was said, I think there's such an importance in being somebody's godfather or godmother because you're being entrusted with the responsibility to raise that child. The, the parents are looking at you and saying, if anything happens to us, you are the next best option to take care of my child. And mm -hmm. did Lily that, not have any friends? Like <laughs> they had to go with James. But it, but it shows how much they cared about Sirius and trusted him. More importantly, with Harry. And so, I I would believe that on some level that constitutes a magical contract between Harry and Sirius. This next one comes from Corn. Uh, question is, did Cursed Child steal their prophecy? In Cursed Child, uh, which is has a debatable level of canonicity, there is, of course, a prophecy. Here it is. Oh, joy. When spares are spared, when time is turned, when unseen children murder their fathers, then will the Dark Lord return. I think this is perfectly applicable to not Sirius or not Albus and Scorpius's adventures, but the events of Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire. Harry spares Pettigrew. They then turn time to spare additionally Sirius and Buckbeak. The Unseen, literally for an invisibility cloak, figuratively for his disownment and shield from public view, Barty Crouch Jr., kills his father, Barty Sr., and at the end of Goblet of Fire, the Dark Lord returns. Just a thought. Oh, yeah. So the, the prophecy really can um, be relevant to the plot of books three and four, even though the prophecy is occurring, uh, you know, later when Cursed Child is going on. Mm -hmm. So the idea, yeah. the idea that the prophecy would even be relevant to events that have already passed means or indicates that we're going to experience those events again and then that will make the dark lord return 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 again return return, return is that what return. you just said he already did yeah return, yeah i return. mean we do see so much of Hashtag goblet of fire teams. in cursed child because of mm -hmm. when albus and scorpius travel back in time too but the way i took the email was that almost as if the writers of cursed child were borrowing their own narrative in a way, or in this case, the prophecy from the events of Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire. So they, they weren't doing a whole lot of their own thinking, so to speak. 
Uh, well, that's, that's true. <laughs> kind of what I was going to say. We don't know who exactly wrote this prophecy. You remember it was Rowling, John Tiffany, and Jack Thorne who wrote this screenplay. I sort of took this email as uh, and the and the revelation as um, they're making a, a callback to the books. Like it wasn't a coincidence. It was probably purposeful that they're that they're referring to the core series. All right. This next email comes from Lauren about Hermione's hatred of divination. Hi, all. I'm a new listener catching up to follow along with your chapter by chapter analysis. So I'm a little behind on the discussion of POA, but I've had Hermione's skepticism toward divination on my mind. And I think I found the origin of her close mindedness on the subject. I recently reread Sorcerer's Stone and noticed this passage at the end of chapter 15 after Harry tells Ron and Hermione about his run-in with Coral Mort and the centaurs. Quote, Hermione looked very frightened, but she had a word of comfort. Harry, everyone says Dumbledore is the only one you know who was ever afraid of. With Dumbledore around, you know who won't touch you. Anyway, who says the centaurs, centaurs are right? It sounds like fortune-telling to me. And Professor McGonagall says that's a very imprecise branch of magic, end quote. Turns out Hermione had already been influenced to mistrust divination by her first year. And based on the context of the situation, this could be where she develops a seed of bias against centaurs after they basically told her best friend he was doomed to die. While she could just be trying to comfort Harry in that moment by dismissing what the centaurs told him, we see her opinion remain on both divination and centaurs for years after, although Trelawney didn't help her case. Thanks for all the great work you do on my new favorite pod, P.S. I'm a Ravenclaw, whose favorite book and movie are both POA. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Excited to have you. And excellent theory. Good catch. Yeah. Yeah, It's a great catch. I also love the idea that the professional um, relationship between McGonagall and Trelawney is so poor that even to her first year class, McGonagall is just like, and fortune telling sucks. And, you know, (laughs) certain kids who care about, yeah, impressionable kids, um, Hermione picked up on the fact that McGonagall at some point during their first year was talking about fortune telling being imprecise and internalized it as kind of, oh, maybe that's not even worthy of study um, that early on. So it's because McGonagall hates divination that Hermione, even in book one, is skeptical of it. Definitely. Yeah, there's something I would argue that for Hermione is aspirational when she sees McGonagall and there, there's something that she really sees in her. And, and I think that we see that develop over the course of the series. But yeah, the the whole idea that this is kind of, it's not on a subconscious level, but perhaps, you know, she, she hears McGonagall say this, she stores it. And then when third year rolls around, she's already going into the divination class with a preconceived notion of what it's supposed to be like and informs her behavior towards Trelawney. I mean, let's not forget, Hermione is not the best to Trelawney throughout, you know, I, I think no. it's it's probably one of the only relationships we see with the teacher where she's willing to really, really push back until maybe we get to Umbridge. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think this also just highlights how Hermione does not navigate 
ambiguity very well, especially when it comes to her academics. Academically, she's very prescriptive. It's binary. It's yes or no, this or that. And that's not divination. Divination is a very qualitative type of science where there is a lot of nuance. There's a lot of interpretation um, that things are left up to. And she just doesn't navigate those kinds of spaces very well because there aren't necessarily clear answers. All right. Our next email comes from Angela, who's asking about Professor Binz's grading practices. Angela says, I have just had this random shower thought, and I can't believe it's never been mentioned before. How did Professor Binz grade his papers? (laughs) He can't move the parchment or lift a quill. Did he have a classroom aid? Or was it another professor? As I recall, he doesn't know he's dead. Would Dumbledore have convinced him to allow someone else to do his grading for him? Like, hey, Binzy, you are so important to us that we would like to give you a break from from this most tedious portion of your job. I mean, why would Dumbledore tell him he's dead when he now has a position he never has to pay? That <laughs> these must be those other is... emails Michael was teasing. <laughs> That's yes, funny. We've moved off of Prisoner of Azkaban now. We are Got it. in yeah. uncharted waters. In- so here's Interesting. here's the thing. Hogwarts accessibility nightmare. Yeah, shout out to Shower Thoughts. Really, mm-hmm. honestly, this is great. I love the idea that you'd yeah. be like, wait, what? do what? you think about in the shower? Professor Bins. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Bins. <laughs> uh, right between the shampoo and the conditioner phase, I'm thinking of ghosts. Um, yeah, no, so uh, the thing about Professor Bins, maybe there's a ghost parchment and ghost paper <laughs> that he can write the grades that it transferred over with him, his whole library. Um is it is an option for me we see him not even know what the students names are or it's not that okay he gets their names wrong but i have full confidence that the names he calls them were the names of previous students that might have been around when he was alive and so it's possible that these children legitimately aren't getting graded uh, at all in history of magic maybe they're Maybe Binz is doing some kind of a routine where he's grading the same old students and then somewhere it's getting converted to re- like maybe nothing they do in that class really matters, just like everybody thinks it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I-, I think that's right. And and I love the fact that he and his class classroom are both in Hogwarts Legacy and that you can explore that. Um, I was just thinking. But yeah, you, have to, you have to push X to not fall asleep. Okay, so I got I got to call out my character definitely fell asleep because the droning of his voice made me totally zone out and I wasn't remembering (laughs) to press X. So I fell asleep during History of Magic. It's perfect. It's the perfect little mini game. You fell asleep IRL? No, no, no. No, no, Just your character. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) It almost sounded like you were saying you fell asleep. So you forgot to hit X. I just zoned out. (laughs) No, Eleanor Eleanor survived History of Magic. I almost want a T-shirt. Uh, you know, in Hogwarts Legacy, where it says I survived. <laughs> All right. Our next email comes from Abby about the narration of Harry Potter. And she says, hey, Muggle cast, I'm a 12-year-old Ravenpuff. And that is a cross between a Hufflepuff and a Ravenclaw, in case y'all didn't know. Uh, and I love you guys. I've been trying to catch up with your chapter by chapter for a while now. 
I finally did. So I was scrolling through your episodes looking for something to listen to. I clicked on episode 338 and had an idea about a question that was asked. You're wondering if Harry Potter was being narrated, and if so, who the narrator could be. I think it's possible the narrator could be Ginny telling your kids a bedtime story. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? I would love to hear what y'all think. (laughs) This is quite the bedtime story. How I Met Your Father. (laughs) Who would narrate? Dumbledore. Yeah. I want Dumbledore's narrator. I can see Dumbledore doing it. He's kind of the manipulator of all time and space anyway. Um, For me, I will say when I was young, um, I really, really, really kind of internalized the Jim Dale narration voice um, on like the DVD menus, if you remember, because it would be like, welcome to Hogwarts. And you'd, you'd, you'd load up the DVD and there would just be this voice talking at you. And I always kind of internalized that as being the voice of the world itself kind of guiding you through. Um, so if there were a, if there were a narrator, it would be in his voice for me. And it, and it wouldn't necessarily be a person that you could go up to and touch and meet, but truly a disembodied omniscient, you know, narrator guy, just a narrator guy, the way Jim Dale narrates, uh, pushing daisies. Bring us home, Eric. Okay. This is from Dahlia. Beautiful name beautiful flower too. My name is Dahlia. I'm 13 and I'm a Hufflepuff. I'm writing to you because recently my family went to the Berkshires of Western Mass. J.K. Rowling's Potter No More article about Ilvermorny says that it's located on the top of Mount Greylock, the highest point in Massachusetts, which is located in the Berkshires. I convinced my family to drive up to the top of the mountain on the top. There is a, this is so cool, Dahlia. (laughs) I convinced my family to drive up to the top of the mountain on the top There is a war memorial, lodge, hiking trails, and more. The thing that stood out to me, though, was at the bottom. In the article about Ilvermorny, it says that the school started out as a stone cottage. When we were driving up to the top at the base of the mountain was a small stone cottage that had a sign on it that said schoolhouse from 18-something. My theory is that, I know. My theory is that even though Ilvermorny is supposed to be at the top of the mountain and founded in the 1600s, the cottage I saw is the original Ilvermorny. They could have moved the small cottage down the mountain to make room for a bigger school using magic. And as for the date, muggles get lots of things wrong. (laughs) That is so cool. That is so observant. And I love that you're merging like book canon with the real world. (laughs) <laughs> you made something physical in the real world canon in your head. Yeah, that's that's the beauty of uh, this level of um, storytelling where it's like the wizarding world lives alongside our world is then when you go out in nature and the woods can be kind of spooky, but they're definitely magical. And you can mm-hmm. it's easy to imagine that cottages and nothing is yeah. what it seems. I really like this email and the fact that she was able to... Uh, get her family to go to the top of the mountain uh you have to drive to the top of the mountain i read it on potter no more and in fairness we know that jk rowling does a lot of research before creating these parts of the magical world now in some cases we also know that she should have done a little bit more research but uh for this let's just say i I think there's something to take away from Dahlia's email. And uh, it's very cool. If you have a picture of it, send it in. 
We'd love yeah. to see Yeah, that. we'd love to see that. I bet, I bet she does. Well, and the placement of Ilvermorny being in New England is just so apropos historically, just because we know about the Salem witch trials and things like that. So there has always been a strong emphasis, I think, in Harry Potter on drawing sort of like inspirations from real life events, or even the inclusion of, you know, real characters of mythological origin, right? Thinking about Merlin, for example, who was a student at Hogwarts, but obviously isn't just a Harry Potter character. So I love this connection. Great catch, Dahlia. Now we'll move to a couple of chicken soup emails to wrap up this Muggle Mail episode. This is from Shannon. Hi, Muggle casters, or should I say, hey, y'all? That really stuck, Laura. I know. Listeners it's love it. It's so good. Anyway, go ahead. Long time listener here <laughs> since 2007-ish. I was listening to the 18th birthday episode and loved how Laura mentioned that MuggleCast give us, gives a sense of routine and safety through life's struggles. I had my first child back in March, and he unexpectedly spent his first week of life in the NICU. Several months later, the emotions of it all really started to get to me. I was back at work, not getting to see my little boy, but a few hours a day, and was really struggling to stay strong for him when I did see him. As a new mom with a difficult birth experience, I didn't really know how to find myself again after what I had been through. I was not and am not the same person I was before my son was born. But when things got really tough, I was able to start listening to MuggleCast at work again. There you were, just as you had always been, that little piece of my old self to fall back on and remind me of who I am. This is so sweet. I'm going to cry. While I've been through a trying experience and have changed a lot, I am still a Harry Potter fan. That remains the same. MuggleCast has helped remind me of who I am in trying times. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for that. Shannon, that is so beautifully written and heartfelt and meaningful to us. Thank you. All right. And our next email comes from Tuesday, who says, hey, y'all. This sounds terrible in my Scottish accent, so it's strictly written use only. I would love to hear what it sounds like for a Scottish person to say, hey, y'all. Call in. There's this one video where it's like (laughs) trying to get Scottish guys to say something like just the weirdest words and they can't say it like (laughs) Auroboros and they just they they can't do it. Uh, Well, Tuesday says... I'm late to the party, but I still wanted to message you guys to tell you one of my favorite MuggleCast moments and to say thank you. Towards the end of last year into the beginning of this year, I found myself homeless. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. I was staying in various temporary accommodations. It was negative eight degrees in Scotland. There was no heating and I couldn't get a hot shower. I was miserable and spent many a night in tears. I also had no internet access, which in itself doesn't bother me too much, but it meant I struggled to get podcasts and audiobooks. I'm registered blind and those are my go-to media form. Around the new year, I got to stay with a family I know through scouting. One of the first things I did was catch up on podcasts. I was sitting in the warm, newly washed clothes, having had a lovely hot shower and listening to you guys. I remember not what any of the episodes were, but I do remember the feeling of being surrounded by friends, of laughing for the first time in ages, and feeling content. 
Fast forward a few months and I'm sitting in a flat of my own. Scotland has turned the temperature up to 25 degrees Celsius and I'm listening to you guys with that same contented smile on my face. Thank you for being there when I needed it most. Here's to many more years of magic. Here's to many more years of magic. Amen to that. And I'm so glad that you're doing okay. It it sounds like things have gotten a lot better, and I'm so glad to hear it. Well, listeners, you have once again inspired us, moved us, and reminded us why we do it after all this time. We know the show makes a big impact on y'all and obviously makes a big impact on us, too. We really love doing it. We really enjoy being your Harry Potter friends. Next week, we will have our Goblet of Fire movie commentary track. We recorded it last night, so we've been on our mics for quite a bit over the last um, 18 hours or so. (laughs) This is uh, hour five, yeah. It was a lot of fun. We hope you all enjoy it, too. You will need to bring your own copy of Goblet of Fire, by the way. Just be aware of that. We do help you sync up with us uh, as we're watching. We all brought our own shot of alcohol to take to shoot when... um, Dumbledore screams, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? Because it's such an iconic moment in, in the Harry Potter fandom. We had to celebrate <laughs> that decision. I will say yes. Uh, legal age, adults only. Do not try that at home if you are underage, as many of you now we are learning more with every episode are. <laughs> 100%. Uh, unfortunately for us on the panel here, we are way past 18. Mm. And if they're sorry, 21. And because of that, we are allowed to uh, have some alcohol from time to time. But if you're under 21, bring a little soda or a glass of water. Oh, yeah. Something special that you like. It's time for Quizage. Last week's question. Who gives Pigwidgeon his name? The correct answer is Ginny Weasley. I never, ever pass up an opportunity to have Ginny be the correct quiz a chancer and oh boy do we have some great names that people submitted under and got the correct question they include harry potter picked a peck of pickled peppers an unregistered fluffy snitch disguised as an owl guys i had homecoming last week and then had to march in a parade the next day lucy the 15 year old pickles for pigwidgeon luke the 12 year old hey y'all it's luke in math class oh crap he sees me bye <laughs> <laughs> HBO's reboot better not do Ginny dirty Bort the 32 year old Rocket the aptly named Golden Retriever Nifflepuff You're a Quizard Harry Accio 12 Bagels What Happened to Quizich Live Give Me Quizich Live Flu Chowder Cooking TM Orbworthy Prophecy Matthew the 11 year old Tell Kevin to play Tears of the Kingdom if he likes Skyrim <laughs> Jenny Penny loves Sirius Black Yo Rufus on Fire is back Looney Loopy Lovely Lupin Voldy Moldy and the Golden Gold Gold ah, Voldy Moldy and the Goldie Trollies, Luke the twelve year old Ivy Bug soon to be ten year old. I am the biggest fan of Piggly Wiggly, Winky's bubbly little problem, and the one that Mike has submitted under. Are you ready for it? If you needed any more proof, Ginny is terrible at naming things. See her children. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there will be news on Quizage Live yeah. t- for that uh, Quizage person who submitted. There will be a Quizage Live uh, sooner rather than later. Within a say. month, I would say. Yeah. We're working on it. Uh, announcement to come later on that. Here is next week's Quizage question. Who found the Riddle family dead? As in, who discovered their bodies? Submit your answer to us on the Quizage 
form located on the MuggleCast website, mugglecast.com slash Quizich, or go to mugglecast.com and click on Quizich from the main nav. If you're an Apple Podcast user for just $2.99 a month, you can receive ad-free and early access to MuggleCast right in the Apple Podcast app. We have lots more benefits on Patreon, though, so be sure to hit up patreon.com slash MuggleCast. You'll also get access to bonus MuggleCast on Patreon. Like Micah said at the top of today's episode, we'll be recording a new one about the things from the Goblet of Fire book that didn't make it to the movie and hopefully will make it to the TV show. We have a great list together that we will talk through. If you're a Spotify user, you can pledge to Patreon pretty easily. Just tap into the show on Spotify and you'll see a Patreon banner there. And then you can get the audio benefits that we post on Patreon right within the Spotify app, actually. This is a newer feature. It's really great. So uh, tap into the show, Spotify users, and check it out. If you enjoy the show and think other muggles would too, tell a friend about the show. We love when people spread the good word about the pod. And we would also appreciate if you left us a review in your favorite podcast app. And last but not least, don't forget that we are on social media, posting all kinds of stuff throughout the week. We're MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Threads. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye.